its listeners to fulfill their civic duty by contributing to upscale shows that entertain and amuse, but avoid connecting corporatocracy to economic collapse, racism, militarism, and climate disasters. KPFA is our lifeline to critical knowledge and insights. Vote for Marilla Arguez and the UCR team. Keep KPFA independent, vigilant, and vital. For more information, go to elections.pacifica.org. It is now 3 o'clock here at KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 o'clock, time for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture, drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is September the 8th, um, 2015. Yesterday was Labor Day. Of course, you knew that. Yes, labor, uh, the workers, God in the light, the light, the light of the labor's lost. Oh, that's Samuel Beckett's line, not mine. Never leave your pen lying in someone else's blood. That's Audrey Lord. <laughs> oh, Lord, Lord, when will the work be done, and when will all the labor lost be won on Labor Day? I looked at my bookshelf. I looked at my bookshelf on Labor Day. I was trying to find words about the labor movement, something that hadn't been said. Oh, oh, unions, eight-hour day, minimum wage, um... I guess, uh, I guess it's all, all the same. Uh, they're on my red shelf, those books, you know, above my pink shelf. My pink shelf is for uh, parlor, yes, parlor reds, parlor pinks, like my mother. Uh, you know, those liberals, they believed in being cool and liberal about everything except economics. Never mind. Uh, I, uh... I, I did bring today some poems about the proletariat. My favorite poems about the proletariat are the ones about Archie and Mehitable, you know. They see things from the underclass, the roach Archie. He says that <laughs> he sees things from the underside now that he's been reincarnated in a roach. He used to be a poet, you know. Mehitable is the cat who lives for the moment. Uh, Anyway, I'll get to Archie and Mehitable. 
Uh, first, I looked at Emma Goldman. Uh, all the working women, Mother Jones, Rosa Luxemburg. At some point, I decided that women writers are just by definition subversives. I mean, they have to be. Uh, equality of rights, liberty is not possible without equality of condition. The condition of being female is a position in which you must be either a feminist or a masochist. <laughs> Footnote here. I remember the great stand-up comedian Mort Saul. He always said that a woman's place was in the stove. No, 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 no. Stokely Carmichael is the best one. He said a uh, uh, woman's position is prone. Love these guys. Anyway, on my red shelf... The women are not just feminists there. Socialists, communists, all that good stuff. Uh, Nawal El Sadawe is one of my, one of my heroes, an Egyptian Marxist. She wrote a book called The Hidden Face of Eve. It's about FGM, female genital mutilation. Uh, as a doctor, her ideology is based pretty much in biology, and when it comes to FGM, she states that this is not a tradition. This is torture. It goes back long, long before the Koran, back to when women became property. <clears throat> in her case, in Egypt, feminism was more dangerous than communism, they put her in prison <clears throat> for a number of months, uh, early 1980s, I remember. Uh, this war on women, uh, it's eternal. People seem to think it's gotten worse. Uh, I don't think it's changed all that much. Uh, long time now, it's been a holy war. Since, think about it. Uh, Perhaps we do have different gods. Some people think so. Uh, I always said if the men would worship in the women's temple and the women would worship in the men's temple, we might learn something. But mostly these days, uh, I want to I want to help those who struggle to keep Planned Parenthood going. This recent assault on Planned Parenthood is keeping me awake nights. Uh, you know how it is. Anyway, there's this feminine principle, and then there's this masculine principle. And they do kind of represent different world views. Now, it's not always obvious, you know. I, I usually do, what is that, um, feminist six, fascist nine, or uh, what would be a better way to put it? <laughs> yes. The culture of cruelty and the culture of compassion. However, most men, that is males, are mostly feminists, but don't tell them. Uh, you know, it gets them all flustered, especially the socialist men, you know. <clears throat> Their masculine mask is essential for survival. It's also essential for females. Those who wear the feminine uh, mask, 
back in the day in France, Simone de Beauvoir. She's my mother's generation. She wrote a book called The Second Sex, and she wrote, We are not born women, we become women. That's okay as far as it goes. In my philosophy, we are all born human beings, and we acquire our masks well, pretty quick, almost at once. Some people say not till adolescence. Sometimes I think that's true anyway. It intensifies, let's say. It intensifies when the hormones kick in. Uh, now, those of us, those of us who have been fortunate enough to grow old, uh, we can go back to androgyny, to uh, what Virginia Woolf called the man-womanly or woman-manly state. Uh, it's that state we knew before puberty, you know. I remember being a ten-year-old girl on the beaches. I thought I was uh, not just immortal, but I thought I was a sea creature. Uh, I heard a boy on the radio this past weekend hit me like a, <laughs> he hit me like a, well, I I just want to say I was pleased. Uh, it made my heart leap. I was on one of the other stations, you know. His name, little kid's name was Parker, I think. He's probably on PBS. Anyway, he's eight years old, this little boy. And he's a very, very special, talented kid. He He's a great footballer. A giant athlete. They talked and talked about how big he was, you know, when he was born. And now his mom says she believes in all these efforts to change or eliminate football for kids. You know how it's supposed to <laughs> supposed to turn them into idiots. Anyway, uh, she's, she's into that uh, good stuff. But then... She is the product of a football family, so she said, well, she just goes down and signs Parker up for football. She just does it anyway. Uh, now, this eight-year-old, Parker himself, he says he's lost interest. Now, it's not clear if he ever did care for the game. Uh, when he's asked what an athlete as special as he is plans to do, that is, what sports he uh, would want to go out for, uh, this athletic, angelic eight-year-old uh, said that, well, he liked synchronized swimming. <laughs> he talked about how graceful it was. Swimming, you know. <clears throat> Time marches on. War is finally a bore. Not even evil anymore, just a bore. It is what Hannah Arendt told us was bland. You know, that's what she said about evil. Just arrested development. Uh, that's all, just stunted, stunted human beings. Uh, I I guess, well, we all know that uh, they're studying this now, and we've learned that uh, evil is passed on genetically. It alters brains, and then it, you know, then uh, 
the children of these demonic people uh, oh, can have altered altered uh, nervous systems scares me to death when I look at the world and think what we may be spawning with wickedness all you know soaking in to our children and then it's what is that uh, being passed down from generation to generation you know what is it W.H. Auden says those to whom evil is done do evil in return now that's just the process <clears throat> it's hard to stop it you know uh, down at the end of my red shelf there's a book about Lenin you remember the father of the Russian Revolution Vladimir Ilyich Lenin uh, one of the most tragic idealists in history his ideological study well his let's face it uh this guy suffered the fate of almost all, uh, what is that, revolutionaries who believe that the power struggle will result in a new world. Now, he didn't fool himself, but uh, he got to a point where he was afraid that he would lose the revolution, you know, kind of because of uh, World War II and all that stuff. So, he established the state police. You remember their name. <laughs> Never mind the proletariat, the workers. Well, they lost their power. It was lost before they had it, really. I wanted to spend today talking about Lenin's arguments with the artist Maxim Gorky, playwright, you know. That's my favorite argument, you know, about whether art is uh, politics. Back and forth, uh, who was it? Uh, oh, it's Bertolt Brecht. He says, art is a hammer with which to shape society. That's pretty much Lenin's view, but he he was self-effacing. He knew that culture should be in the hands of the artists, and he did try to be objective, but he liked the straightforward stuff. Uh, came to be called social realism. Now, Gorky, of course, Maxim Gorky, he was... I guess a liberal, that is. He was not a Bolshevik. He was one of the, uh, I forget what they were called, M.E.R. Mershevics, -er yes. Uh, Bolsheviks were the uh, hard, yeah, the, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, the hard uh, uh, thinkers, and he was a soft thinker. That doesn't make any sense, does it? The language is murder. Now, of course, Gorky believed in the revolution in theory. Lenin distrusted intellectuals, and of course, well, he, he loved music, but he distrusted that too, you know. He said the intellectuals always caved at the end. It's the oldest rift in the world. Art for art's sake made them go crazy, you know, all the new stuff, all the new stuff. Uh, Lenin thought it was just incomprehensible. I'd have to agree sometimes. Anyway, what's left of the left still argues, you know. I'm all for changing the names. Never say the C word. Never, never, never. Economic democracy, that's what we call 
communal uh, ideology. International workers of the world, change it, change it. Make it international middle class. I like it. International minimum wage. It's a hopeless muddle. Language uh, is used to do everything, everything but clarify. Words work on the emotions, kind of like art, yes. Students back in the 20th century, they never stopped defining this stuff. They, I guess they thought they were defining class. Uh, they were always trying to find reasons, uh, labels. They wanted the rich and the poor, you know, to represent something besides <laughs> wealth and poverty. Mm. Well, we should have had socialism a long time ago, but for the socialists, that's what George Bernard Shaw said. He thought he was being funny. Now, I have promised myself lately no more ranting, no more wringing of the hands. I'm always trying to get these things sorted. See, that's what Maxim Gorky was trying to do. Uh, I have hardening of the categories, just like these guys. Now, I marked something here that I did want to read you. Just a couple of lines. Uh, <laughs> Here's Lenin. He went to visit the students in 1921. The year of the Great Famine, one evening, Lenin paid a visit to a community of young painters. The boys and girls slept on bare boards. They had neither fire nor bread, nourishing themselves on unsalted porridge. They burned with enthusiasm for the new art. Showed their work to Lenin, tried to explain it. Lenin laughed, evaded their questions, took pleasure in looking not at their work but at them. Uh, he said, what do you read? Do you read Pushkin? Oh, no, someone blurted out. He was a bourgeois. Uh, Mayakovsky for us. Lenin smiled. I think Pushkin is better. <laughs> um, he liked the, what he called, fine realists. Tolstoy, Chekhov, Zola... And this little biography goes on to talk about the poets he liked. Uh, it's an evergreen profile book, folks. Published, would you believe, in 1961. It's a long time ago. It's from the Grove Press Evergreen Books. I love to keep the old, old books. Uh, anyway, uh, Lennon says here was bored by the theater, often left after the first act. He was interested in Hauptmann's The Weavers, but Gorky's play The Lower Depths seemed too theatrical to him. You know, he, didn't, he didn't want to con people. <laughs> anyway, uh, this biographer says that Lennon did not try to impose his taste, but then he turns around and says that pretty soon, you know, we had social realism because... Uh, he had to hold the line. There's a, a wonderful description here of Lenin going to a poetry reading. <laughs> and this famous Mayakovsky, this poet that the young radicals loved, uh, uh, his poems were a little bit uh, over the top. And a local actress uh, 
got up. This was a concert given for the Red Guard, and she was reciting one of the poems. Uh, and uh, she advanced, it says, with a rhythmical step, swooped down upon Lennon, who was seated in the first row. He listened nervously, sighed with relief, when she was replaced by an actor reading a story by Chekhov. Uh, now, about this Mayakovsky, he said to Gorky, Lennon said to Gorky, he shouts, invents some sort of distorted words. Doesn't get anywhere, in my opinion. Besides, it's incomprehensible. It's all disconnected. It's difficult to read. Hmm. Say he's talented, very talented even. Well, <laughs> we shall see. I love this stuff. Uh, it's all, of course, nonsense because... Uh, this is about what they thought. What we have to find out, of course, is what happened. What happened? Uh, I keep asking myself, uh, uh, what are my categories? Why have I, why have I lost track? I have hardening of the categories, you know, still because I'm so old. I ask myself, is, was, is Fidel Castro the sort of socialist, socialist leader who might, might have created a successful social structure uh, together with a creative culture full of art and music? Could that have happened if he had not been cornered by the sanctions the United States used to suffocate his country's economy? Poor guy was surrounded. No more, no more of this. Uh, what might have been, that's the saddest. Uh, actually, I used to think Cuba was a theme park, and I do still think that it is, uh, if not a lesson, it is a beautiful example of what can start to happen, what might happen. Even JFK, John F. Kennedy, used to say to students, he said, don't look so hard at what we are. Try to look at what we are trying to become. Never mind, as I said, no more quetching. I want to read Archie and Mechitable because they cheer me up. This poem from 1920s and 30s, Chicago Sun-Times, is titled Unjust. This is the poet. Uh, Archie, he's now a roach. He doesn't use capital letters because it's too hard to press that key. He writes, Poets are always asking where do the little roses go underneath the snow, but no one ever thinks to say, where do the little insects stay? This is because as a general rule, roses are more handsome than insects. Beauty gets the best of it in this world. I have heard people say how wicked it was to kill our feathered friends in order to get their plumage and pinions for the hats of women. And all the while, these same people might be eating duck as they talk. Chances are that it is just as discouraging to a duck to have her head amputated in order to become a stuffed roast fowl and decorate a dining table as it is for a bird of gayer plumage to be bumped off the running board of existence to furnish plumage 
for a lady's hat. <sighs> but the duck does not get the sympathy because the duck is not beautiful. The only insect that succeeds in getting mourned is a moth or butterfly, whereas every man's heel is raised against the spider, and it's getting harder and harder for spiders to make an honest living at that, since human beings have invented so many ways of killing, well, ways of killing flies. Humanity will shed palms full of tears over the demise of a bounding doe or a young gazelle. But the departure of a trusty camel leaves the vast majorities stonily indifferent. Perhaps the theory is that God would not have made the camel so ugly if the camel were not wicked. Alas, exclamation point, the pathos of ugliness is only perceived by us cockroaches of the world. And personally, I'm having to stand for a lot. I'm getting it double, as you might say, before my soul migrated into the body of a cockroach. It inhabited the carcass of a very liberated poet. Some liberated poets are beautiful, but I was not. I had a little blonde mustache that everyone thought was a mistake, and yet since I have died... I have thought of that with regret. It hung over a mouth that I found it difficult to keep closed because of adenoidal trouble. And it would have been better if I could have kept it closed because the teeth within were out of alignment and were of odd sizes. This destroyed my acoustics, as you might say. My chin was nothing much and knew it and timidly shrank into itself receding from the battle of life. My eyes were all right, but my eyebrows were scarcely noticeable. I suppose, though, that if I had had noticeable eyebrows, they would have been wrong somehow. Well, well, not to pursue this painful subject. Ah, not to the uttermost and ultimate wart and freckle, I was not handsome, and it hampered me when I was a human. It mitigated against me as a poet. More beautiful creatures could write verse worse than mine and get up and recite it with a triumphant air and get away with it. But my sublimest ideas were thought to be a total loss when people saw where they came from. I think it would have been only justice if I had been sent to inhabit a butterfly. But there is very little justice in the universe. What is the use of being in the universe if you have to be just? Interrogation point. And I suppose the universe has so much really important business on hand that it finds it impossible to look after the details. It is rushed. Perhaps it has private knowledge uh, to the effect that eternity is brief after all. It wants to get the big jobs finished in a hurry. I find it possible to forgive the universe. I meet it in a give-and-take spirit, although I do wish that it would consult me at times. Please forgive the profundity of these meditations. Whenever I have nothing particular to say, 
I always find myself always plunging into cosmic philosophy or something. Oh, dear. I do wish I had time to read uh, uh, the song of the spider. You remember that sad song, the song of the shirt, the one that was written about the uh, old seamstress whose children are dying and she's trying to uh, do enough sewing to buy food. And there's a parody in here of uh, the spider and how she suffers because, you know, no matter how many webs she spins, she cannot do well enough. And, of course, she always meets with a heel. Uh, next time I'll read Off with the Old Love. It's about Mehitable, the cat going to Paris. <laughs> she gets into some serious, some serious trouble. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air this time next week. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Every Friday, happy endings. Watkins, out of Baltimore, took over his brother's drug selling when his brother got killed. He grew up in the game, put himself through Johns Hopkins while dealing. Now, D. Watkins is a community college professor with an explosive new book called The Beast Side, Living and Dying While Black in America. It's all about police violence, the prison industrial complex, the collapse of education in the inner city. D. Watkins will be at First Congregational Church in Oakland at 2501 Harrison Street on Tuesday, September 22nd, 7.30 p.m. There's free parking and wheelchair access at this KPFA 